Well, hey, good morning. How's everybody doing this fine Sunday morning? Hey, my name is Adam, and it's great to be with you here this morning, one of the pastors here at Meadowland Church. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. Um, if you want to go uh, digital and turn on your Bible, we would love for you to do that this morning. If you want to uh, use the Bible that you brought with you, we'd love for you to have that opportunity. If you didn't bring a Bible or don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere in front of you in the row you're sitting in, and you could just grab a hold of that thing, and we'll be on page uh, 775 this morning. And uh, in fact, if you don't own a Bible, and we would love to give you that Bible right in front of you as a gift, and you could feel free to take that one home with you and that way you'd have the opportunity to be in God's Word throughout the week. And so Jonah chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided for you, 775. If you brought your own Bible, I have no idea what page we're on. So Jonah chapter 4. Um, we've been in this study of Jonah for a few weeks now, and so I kind of want to recap um, as we begin to wind down our study in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah has been a fantastic uh, study for me personally. I've really enjoyed uh, reading the scriptures and being in the, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And I think one of the things that's interesting is for most of us, uh, somewhere along the line, we came up with this idea that we think the book of Jonah is really a, a story that we tell children. Uh, but if we really slow down and allow God's word to speak to us, I think we begin to discover uh, that Jonah's a book really for us, that we begin to discover that uh, maybe we have some struggles and maybe we have some issues that we need to work out in our own hearts. And I, I would tell you that I think if we read uh, Jonah chapter 4 properly this morning, it's going to sting a little bit. There's going to be a little bit of wrestling, a little bit of uh, wondering, what does this mean for me? In fact, I would kind of tell you this as we get into this is I think Jonah chapter 4 is maybe one of the, the weirdest endings in all of the Bible because it just ends. There's no, there's no resolution. There's no, here's three things to consider. It just ends. And actually, I think the reason the narrator ends Jonah chapter 4 the way he does is because it leaves you and I with questions. That at the end of Jonah chapter 4, it's no longer about Jonah. It's about you. And it's about me. And how we'll respond to the story that we see. And so just to recap what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we see in Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that, that great city, and I want you to call out against them. I want you to call out against their wickedness. In fact, when God's word comes to Jonah, he tells Jonah to arise and go to that great city, Nineveh. What we see happen is that Jonah arises, he arises, but he doesn't go to Nineveh. In fact, he runs the opposite way. He goes down to Joppa, a port city, and he climbs on a boat that is setting sail for Tarshish, and he's trying to get as far away from God as he possibly can. In fact, most people believe that boat ride one way was about a year long of a journey, that he was trying to run from God and get as far away as he could. And God, who is a God of grace, God is a God who pursues us, is pursuing Jonah, and he sends a storm to get Jonah's attention to say, hey, I'm pursuing you. Hey, I have a plan for you. I desire some things for your life. And we see that Jonah doesn't respond. In fact, the captain of the ship comes out and tells Jonah, hey, we're casting some lots, and your name keeps coming up. I think this has something to do with you, and uh, maybe you should wake up, and maybe you should pray, and maybe if you would pray, then maybe your God would relent. And Jonah says, I, I think there's a different way. I think you should throw me off the boat. That if you were to throw me off, then God would relent, and he would spare you. And 
Scripture says that the captain wrestles with this idea. He, he doesn't really want to throw Jonah off the side of the boat, but decides, hey, it's his fault. He's not dealing with it. Let's throw him off the side of the boat. And we see that Jonah gets thrown off the side of the boat, and this great fish who's commanded by God swallows Jonah up, or he spends three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish. In Jonah chapter 2, we see a greater picture of what really takes place. It's as though uh, Jonah chapter 1 is this really big picture, and then Jonah chapter 2, we slow down a little bit, and we we look at some smaller details. In fact, uh, in Jonah chapter 2, we see that Jonah kind of recounts what happens to him as he's in the water, and as he's sinking, and the waves are billowing over him, and he gets entangled in seaweed, and he feels like he's about to die. And yet he says, then God showed up. I remembered the Lord, and this great fish swallowed him up. And we see Jonah's prayer. And Jonah remembers that salvation belongs to God. He remembers who God is and what God's like. And at the end of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah makes this big statement, and he says, I will, I will fulfill my vow. I'll make good on my word, and God, I'll, I'll do what you've commanded me to do. And my favorite part of Jonah is Jonah chapter 2, the last verse, where it says the great fish vomits Jonah out, because I just think that'd be nasty. I just think that'd be gross. And then Jonah chapter 3 is uh, Jonah being obedient to God. He goes into Nineveh, and he begins to cry out against Nineveh, and this is his message. He says, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He begins to go through the city, and he cries out the message that God's given him. He goes, listen, in 40 days, God's going to do something. And we talked about that word overthrow can mean to change or to destroy. And that in 40 days, something is going to happen. As we see is that Jonah begins to proclaim God's message, that the Ninevites begin to respond, that, that they begin to repent, and they begin to put on sackcloth. And even the king gets involved and says, we're going to have a fast. Even the, the animals in the field are going to fast. Now what's interesting is, Jonah chapter 3, much like Jonah chapter 1, is a very big picture, kind of painted with broad strokes. Jonah chapter 4, much like Jonah chapter 2, slows down a little bit and shows us some of the final, final, like some of the finer details of what's happening. So what happens in Jonah chapter 4 is Jonah chapter 4 actually overlaps with Jonah chapter 3. What we know is that as Jonah marched through the city proclaiming God's word, is that people began to respond and that God was going to spare the city. The way that Jonah chapter 4 starts is Jonah doesn't know this yet. This hasn't been revealed to him. In fact, what happens is Jonah marches through the city, he makes it to the end of the city, and he begins to camp out, and he decides that he's going to camp out and wait and see what's going to take place. So we know more at this point than Jonah knows in the story. And as Jonah begins to camp out and wait upon God, we begin to see some things in Jonah's character, begin to see some things in his relationship with God. And I think as we observe these things, it causes us to ask questions about our character and about our relationship with God. So let's dive into Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So Jonah's camped out, waiting to see what's going to happen. And it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah just gets done marching through the city, overcoming his fear that he would be killed, overcoming his fear that uh, maybe his life would be on the line, and he begins to see 
some people respond, and it says that Jonah's angry. Now, what's interesting about this, if we really think about this, is if this story happened today, at the end of Jonah chapter 3, like Jonah would be booked for every major pastor conference in America, right? He, he would have a book on the bestseller list. Um, he, he would have a blog that everybody would read, and time would probably make him the sexiest man of the year. I mean, they, they would just give him that one because he saved a whole city. I think it would probably happen. And yet what it says is that he is angry. That, that as he sits on the outskirts of Nineveh, he's really upset. In fact, the word displeased in Hebrew is the word ra'ah. Okay, now this is, this is important, the word ra'ah, because it means evil, wickedness, depravity, misfortune, disaster. Like, it wasn't just that Jonah was upset a little bit. He felt as though evil had been done to him by God. He felt that wickedness was being done to him. He felt like there was depravity in his life, misfortune and disaster. And it says that the way he felt, ra'ah, he was angry about. Now, the word anger is kara. It contains the root word ra'ah, but it's kara, and it means to burn, to be kindled of anger, almost like he's a man smoldering, a man on fire with anger, that he is so repulsed by what took place. He is so upset and so angry that he's burning with fire. And this isn't just a little tiff. This isn't just things aren't that great. Jonah's in crisis. He feels that evil has been done to him and he's burning red hot, mad about it. So Jonah turns to God in prayer. I think this is an interesting observation because there's only two times that we see Jonah pray within the book about his life. The first would be when he's in the belly of the big fish. So in the middle of a disaster, when he needs God to save his life, he cries out to him. And the second time is when he's not happy, when he feels like evil's been done to him and he's going to throw a full-blown tantrum. And I wonder if that's significant because maybe it looks like some of our prayer life. Is that the only time we cry out to God is when we feel like we need him? Or we only cry out to God when we aren't getting our way, at least we're not being treated as though we think we deserve to be treated. And I think Jonah's prayer life reveals some things about Jonah. That he's not actually someone who pursues God like he would like to think. That in Jonah chapter 1 where he says, I fear the Lord, that statement is never really reflected in his life. And see, the reason that Jonah is so angry, the reason that Jonah is so put out, the reason he is kara burning with fire, is because Jonah disagrees with God. Now, this isn't a disagreement between God and Jonah. It's that Jonah flat out disagrees with God. And he's saying, God, I'm going to dig in my heels here. The reason that I feel angry, the reason that I feel like wickedness has been done to me has everything to do with who you are and what you're trying to do. I'm upset about the way you're trying to use me. I'm upset about the, the things you want to do in my life. I'm upset about the things you want to do in this world. And I just flat out disagree. God, I think you're wrong. I don't think you should do the things you're doing. 
And I definitely don't think you should do the thing you're about to do. And there's so much conflict. And there's so much turmoil. And there's so much frustration that Jonah doesn't see an end. In fact, as he begins to cry out to God in prayer, he reveals his heart to God and he reveals his heart to us. Jonah chapter four, verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Like this is Jonah's prayer. And if we really look at this prayer, like this, this thing's a little jacked up. I mean, Jonah's going, God, because I know who you are. God, because you're merciful. God, because you're a God of grace. God, because you're a God of salvation who prefers salvation and redemption to destruction because you're that kind of God. I, I just, I kind of want to die. And you're going, Jonah, this doesn't make exact sense. And this is why we have to understand why Jonah disagrees. Because Jonah doesn't disagree on a theological point. Jonah doesn't just disagree about a scripture verse. Jonah's anger comes from the fact that he is displeased with the very character of God. But at this point in Jonah's life, he's going, listen, I know who you are and I don't like it. I know who you are and I know what your heart is like and it would be better for me to die than to have to put up with you, God. And see, as much as they disagree, there's, I think, four things that both God and Jonah agree on. And I want you to see this because there's more that they agree on than they disagree on. In fact, I think if you could sit down God and Jonah and interview them, maybe I could be Katie Couric for that meeting, and we would sit down and we would say, can we see what you guys agree on? I think they would agree on these four things. Number one, Nineveh is wicked. Like, There's not going to be a whole lot of argument about that one. God calls that one out. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. God says, listen, Nineveh is filled with people who are evil. And Jonah says, yep, I agree with that one. In fact, we see time and time again, Jonah goes, I don't even know if I want to go there because they're so evil. I don't even want to go there because they're so wicked. They agree on that point. Point number two, salvation belongs to God. Like Jonah gets that one in a living illustration when he's drowning and he gets swallowed up by the big fish and he's praying. And he says, but with a voice of thanksgiving... With sacrifice to you, what I vowed I will pay. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. He goes, listen, our God saves. He goes, I know that our God saves because I was drowning and he saved me. There was nothing I could do. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. The other thing that both God and Jonah would agree on is that God's nature is to be both gracious and merciful. This is what Jonah just prayed to God. 
He goes, I know that you're a gracious God. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're slow to anger and that you're abounding in steadfast love and that you're relenting from disaster. In fact, they both agree, number four, that God would offer Nineveh grace before he offered them destruction. And this is Jonah's big reveal of his heart. He goes, isn't this what I said to you? Like, isn't this what was going on in my life when I was fleeing from you, God? I knew that if you sent me to Nineveh, I knew that you would offer them grace. I knew that you would offer them mercy. I knew that you would offer them salvation, which is why I, fl- I fled, which is why I ran, which is why I got on the boat. See, Jonah disagrees with one thing, with one point. He disagrees with one major characteristic of God. See, what's interesting, there may be some of us in this room this morning, and the reality is it's just one thing, isn't it? It's just that one thing that happened. Just that one hurt that was done. It was just that one circumstance that was outside your control, and you're allowing that to separate you and God. See, sometimes we like to think it's a lot of things. I think Jonah liked to think, hey, I've got this whole book written on all the things that God has done wrong, but the reality is it comes down to one little thing. And what we discover is that Jonah's wrong. And maybe for some of us, we should look at our lives and ask the question, what is that one thing that I allow to prevent me from fully being satisfied in him? What is that one point that I'm holding on to? that allows me to fully love him or to fully trust him. And for Jonah, it's this. For Jonah, the one point is the fact that God would save somebody that he didn't think needed to be saved. And so maybe for you, it's something like you need to forgive somebody, but they hurt you so bad. You've got to find just this one thing. Man, they hurt me. Maybe for some of us, it's control. God, I don't want to give up control. I want to rule and I, I want to reign, and it sounds like that's what you're pretty good at doing, and I don't want to lose that in my life. Maybe for some of us, it's finances. God, I don't want to use my money that way. I don't want to do what you're telling me to do there. So we allow that one thing. See, maybe for some of us, it's protection. As we go, listen, listen, I want to forgive, and I want to be humble, and I want to be graceful, but I don't want to get hurt again. I don't want to become a doormat. So we allow these little things to get in the way. You see, the reality is these little things are never little things, are they? They start as little things but then they become really big things to to the point that maybe we like Jonah come to the point in our lives where we go, God, I don't know what else to do. It feels like maybe it would be better for me to die than to live because of this one thing that we're at odds about, because of this one thing that I'm struggling with, because of this one thing that I'm holding onto. 
See, Jonah begins to reveal to God and begins to reveal to us that this one thing that he's willing to die over, this whole suicidal tantrum is about the character of God. See, Jonah knows God well. Jonah has experienced God in incredible ways. And I think Jonah at this point is going, listen, I expect you to show me grace because you're a God of grace. And I expect you to show me mercy because you're a merciful God. And I expect you to show me second chances because sometimes I need second chances. But I would rather die than live in a world where my enemy gets the same grace. My enemy gets the same mercy. And my enemy gets the same second chances. Jonah literally tells God, I would rather die than live in a world where all people can experience your love and your mercy and grace. Jonah goes, God, I expect you to do all this for me. I expect when I run from you, I expect you to pursue me. And when I sin against you, I expect you to forgive me. And when I need grace and when I need love and when I need mercy, I expect you to give it to me, but not them. How dare you show grace to them? How dare you show love to them? How dare you pursue them? How dare you show mercy to them? How dare you give them the same second chance that you would give to me? He goes, don't you get it, God? Don't you get how evil they are? Don't you get that they've hurt me? Don't you get that they've made bad decisions? Don't you get that this is their fault? Don't you get that they got there by rebelling against you and being dis... Don't you, how are you going to give them the same grace that you give me? How are you going to give them the same mercy that you give me? How are you going to give them the same opportunity for second chances that you give to me? See, and unfortunately, like Jonah, too many Christians and too many churches make this decision all the time. We would say, God, we would rather stay comfortable than see them saved. God, we would rather stay the way we are than to reach people who are far from you. God, we would rather close our doors than be forced to give up the way we enjoy doing church today. God, I would rather live in my little bubble instead of sharing my faith or offering grace to people who are not like me and people who are far from you. God, I would rather die than offer forgiveness and to see your grace and to see your mercy, to see them saved. See, and the question that every single one of us is faced with is what do we love more than participating with God to see people saved? What do we love more than participating with Christ to see people saved? See, I don't want you to misunderstand this statement because salvation belongs to the Lord. You and I cannot save anybody. 
Like if salvation was up to me, the entire population of Johnsburg would be saved and they'd all be here this morning. But it's not. I don't have the power to save anyone and you don't have the power to save anyone. But I think Jesus makes it really, really clear that he intends to use us that God has strategically placed you where you are and given you relationships with the people that you have relationships with so that he can work through you, so that you can share your faith, so that you can be a living example, so you can be salt and light, so that you can love God and you can love people. Isn't that what Jesus said? The harvest is plentiful, but the problem is the workers are so few. See, I believe that we serve a God who saves and that salvation belongs to him. And I don't think you can prevent God from saving someone, just like I don't think you can save anyone by your own power. But the question would be is, what do you love more than participating with Christ? What do you love more than being that agent? What do you love more than saying, God, use me so that more people could know you, so that more people could be saved by you, so that just like I experienced your grace, your mercy, and your second chances, I want to see them experience your grace, your mercy, and your second chances. See, in the middle of Jonah's tantrum, in the middle of his discourse about how they don't deserve God's grace, and how they don't deserve God's love, and how they don't deserve his mercy, how they don't deserve his salvation, but rather, what they need is to be destroyed. God shows up and he speaks to Jonah. And I love this question, because in the midst of an argument, this question would drive anybody nuts. If you don't believe me, just try it next time you're in an argument. God shows up and says this to Jonah. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Like the next time, if you're married, the next time your spouse is really upset, go, I just have a question for you. Do you do well to be angry? And then run. I mean, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. I just know that if I was angry and you said that to me, it wouldn't help in any way. But God's God, and he shows up to Jonah, and he goes, listen, how's, how's this working for you? You being angry and all upset. How's that going? And what's interesting is it's not God mocking Jonah. It's not God teasing Jonah. Once again, this is God's grace to Jonah. Because if God is close enough for Jonah to hear his voice, that means in the middle of this tantrum that God drew near to him, that God was with him, That God didn't abandon him, but God was close enough to say, hey, how's that going for you? How is this whole thing working out for you? That in the middle of his anger, God shows up. God draws near. And God speaks. And we talk about this all the time at Meadowland Church, but when you hear his word, it's always an opportunity for God to work. And when God speaks to Jonah, this is an opportunity. This is God saying, I want to get involved and I want to do something and I I want to see you draw closer to me because I'm pursuing you and because I give you grace and I give you mercy. And Jonah, this is like your 10,000 second chance right here. How is it going for you being angry? And I believe because God is a good God. 
I believe because God is a God that is pursuing Jonah's heart, what he does next is an attempt to illustrate to Jonah how foolish he is, to illustrate to him how far off he is. And I think it's an attempt for Jonah to see his foolishness so that he can repent, so that he can turn back to God, and so he could join in the participation and the jubilation of what God is going to do next. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. And so Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. Some people ask the question, why did Jonah sit on the east side of the city? I don't think there's any significance to the fact that he's on the east side of the city other than, I think what Scripture told us in Jonah chapter 3 is he entered the west side of the city, and he walked the entire city from west to east. So this is just where he landed. He went from one gate to the next gate, and when he got out, he just said, I'm going to sit here, and I want to see what God does. I'm going to see how they respond. And remember, Jonah's message was 40 days. 40 days, and God will overthrow you. And so there's some time here that Jonah, I think, probably got through the city as fast as possible. It was a three-day journey, remember, through the city. And I bet he walked as fast as he could. He was kind of like jazzercising, getting through there, yelling as loud as he could, gets to the other city, gets to the other side, and he just sets up camp. Verse 6. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up for Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. In the midst of his anger, in the midst of his rant, in the midst of his waiting, God sends a plant. Now this is significant because the hut he made would have been made out of stone. That more than likely what Jonah had was just kind of two piles of stone with not much of a roof over it. Uh, primarily because what scholars tell us is that outside of Nineveh was desert wasteland, that any wood would have been taken. And so he probably found some twigs that he could throw over his two piles of stone. But this was temporary shelter. And so in the hot sun, he needed shade. He needed refreshed. He needed to be cooled. And so God sends a plant. Now, this had to be a, a supernatural occurrence unless this was like a dandelion on steroids because all of a sudden the plant comes up and it's big enough to provide shade. It's big enough to provide some sort of shelter for Jonah and he is glad, exceedingly glad because Jonah sees that God's with him. That Jonah sees that the details of his life are important to God, that our God's a God who loves us so much that sometimes he just sends us shade. And we begin to see that God is a God that desires Jonah's redemption, not Jonah's destruction. Because what happens next, we can misunderstand. What happens next, you go, what a cruel God. Unless we see it through the context that God is pursuing Jonah so that Jonah no longer goes down this course, so that once again he would have a moment in his life where his journey is heading one way and God say, you're heading towards destruction. You're heading to a place that isn't good for you and I'm trying to turn you back. And listen, I already used a whale or a big fish on this one. Like, would you please respond to me? Would you please respond to what I'm doing? 
in your life. And this is what happens next. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? God goes like, haven't we had this conversation? Like, how's being angry over the plant really doing for you? And Jonah responds, and he said, Yes, I will do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, their left, and also much cattle. Now this is significant. Because what God gives to Jonah is a living illustration. And he goes, listen, look at your values. Look at what you cherish. And look at what you celebrate. And as you begin to look at this, you'll, you'll see that you're off target a little bit. Because he goes, listen, you, you cherish the plant. He goes, but the plant has no value. He goes, it was born in a day and it died in the day. And you cherished it. Like you were exceedingly glad over the plant. And God goes, well, what about the cattle? Like there's 120,000 cattle. Like, don't you feel sympathetic for them? That's a lot of beef. And God says, don't you understand that if I destroy Nineveh, I destroy the cattle as well? Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, when the whole place goes, the whole place goes, and he goes, listen, don't you feel just a little sympathetic for all the cattle? Insignificant to Jonah. You care less. I want the plant. At this point, he's a very adamant vegetarian. And God says, what about the people? What about the people, Jonah? That most people believe there were somewhere between 500,000 and 600,000 people in Nineveh. See, God goes, don't you get it? Don't you get that I'm the God of the plant? That I caused the plant to grow and I caused the plant to die? Don't you get that I'm the God of the worm that ate the plant? Don't you get that I'm the God of the wind that you despise? Don't you get that I'm the God of the cattle? That I created them? That I caused them to taste good and I caused them to do what they do? And don't you get that I'm the God of these people? I understand that they're wicked. I understand that they don't know their right hand from their left hand, that they're so far gone that there's no way back for them unless we help. Because don't you get that I created them in my image? Don't you remember that they have intrinsic value because they're image bearers? And yet Jonah damns them. Because I want God to destroy them. I want to see all of them die at the hand of an angry, wrathful, 
God. And God says to Jonah, you see the way you pity the plant? I care that much more for my people. That the way the plant would come in a day and die in a day, and you're ready to die over this plant. Because that's how I feel about my people who are far from me. I pity them. I have concern for them. I desire for them to know me so that they can see my grace and to see my mercy and have opportunities for salvation and redemption because I would choose redemption over destruction any day, Jonah. Don't you get who I am? And don't you get that who I am is for all people, not just for you? I think God begins to ask Jonah some very difficult questions. Jonah, are you so in love with your racism that you would have me kill these people just because they're Ninevites? Are you so in love with your nationalism that only your country can be saved and no other country can be saved? Are you so judgmental of them that you would forsake my attributes and my character? Do you really believe, Jonah, that only rebels who sin the way you do should be saved? And the narrator leaves us in this moment. There's no resolution. But we never see Jonah respond. In fact, we have no idea what happens next. And I think the reason for that is is because you and I are supposed to sit in this moment that you and I are supposed to sit in this quiet space and say, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the way that I feel about God? What does this mean for the way I feel about people who are far from God? Am I like Jonah? Are there people that I don't want to see saved? Are there people who I'm unwilling to go to? Are there people that I would rather say no for and say, you're going to hell because I don't want to participate with what Christ is trying to do here? See, I think the point for us is that salvation belongs to our God. And we have so much more than Jonah had. We have the entire Bible, God's word for us. That we've seen Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and we have his commands. Things like he says, love the Lord your God, but also love people. These are the two greatest commands. That we would have a Jesus who would talk entirely about lost sheep and lost coins and lost people and say that's how God feels about people who are far from him. And see, our question would be is, are we willing? Are we willing to participate? Are we willing to go? Are we willing to share our faith? Are we willing to preach his message? Are we willing to participate in evangelism because the people who are far from him are the people who continue to matter to him? At Meadowland Church, we say it this way. We say that found people find people. That all throughout the New Testament, you see this movement take place that Jesus would interact with someone and that person would then run and go tell someone else. In fact, there's even times that Jesus would tell somebody, hey, I don't want you to say anything about this because here's what I know is going to happen next. You're going to go tell everybody. 
And then what happens in your life and my life is that when we're saved by Jesus, that we should tell people. I love this quote that says, Christianity is one beggar telling another where he found bread. They go, listen, if I can find grace and if I can find mercy and if I can be forgiven, then surely you can too. And the only place I ever found that forgiveness, the only place I ever found that purpose, and the only place I ever felt like I was made as a new creation was because of Jesus. And that we would tell as many people as possible. That we would share with as many people as we can. And that we would not become people who think we love Jesus, but are sending people to hell because we would rather see them destroyed than to have a conversation than to get uncomfortable or make some sort of change. In fact, I think Jesus says it best when he says it in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 through 37. Now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who love him, people who are marked by their relationship with him. And he says, If you love me, then this is what you should do. He says, but love your enemies and do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful And do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. See, for me, one of the biggest questions that I'm faced with in Jonah's life, and maybe the question we're all faced with, is have we fallen in love with the wrong things? Have we fallen in love with the wrong things? Jonah cherished a plant, was indifferent towards cattle, and had audaciously damned people that God had sent him to pursue through his word. And I just wonder if sometimes we are tempted to fall in love with the wrong things. That we fall in love with the things that God has provided for us instead of falling more in love with him, the provider. I wonder if at times we become passionate about keeping our church family the way it is instead of actively seeing more lives changed by Jesus and disciples made. I wonder sometimes if we cherish our comfort and our schedule more than getting involved in the messy, unpredictable lives of people who are far from Jesus. In fact, this week was really about Jonah. What I'd like to do is invite you back next week for a message called God Loves Our Community. And the reason I would love for you to come back next week is we're going to do church like we've never done church at Meadowland Church before. What I mean by that is I need your help to teach the message next week. And so what I need is your voice. What I need is your heart. 
What I need is your thoughts because we're going to go back and forth about this topic. This one was about Jonah. Next week I want to talk about us and what prevents us from pursuing people that our God is so passionate about. So I'd love for you to be here next week so we could take this big idea that we see in Jonah chapter 4 and really hash it out for your life, for my life, and for our church. But isn't it great that we have a God who saves, that salvation belongs to him and him alone, and that grace and mercy and salvation are available to us today. And may we never be people who stand in the way. And may we never be people who are unwilling to participate in the salvation that Christ is trying to bring. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we do thank you for who you are, God. God, I pray that as we know you more, that we would respond to you by worshiping you. God, I pray that we would not be Jonah-type people, that as we see your love and your mercy and your character, God, that it would actually stir in us this desire to rebel from you or to move away from you. But God, that I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we see you for who you are, a God of mercy, of grace, and of salvation, God, that we would move towards you, God, that you would call us to yourself and that we would respond to you, God, that we would experience firsthand the salvation that Jesus secured for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And God, I pray in these next few moments as we worship you and as we respond to you, God, I pray that you would draw close to us. And I pray that we would respond personally and corporately in ways that would glorify you and magnify your name and bring joy to you. God, help us to love you above all things and help us to be satisfied in you more than anything else on the face of this planet. And God, may the desire of our heart be to follow you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you, and we ask that you would work in a mighty way. Amen.